It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there. And he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as are Lou Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Cleveland's team, a baseball history podcast. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Robinson, line drive, Now, here's your host, Guardians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Cleveland baseball fans. Um, I am back with our history podcast, a bit under a new name. This podcast is now called uh, Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast. And I'm really excited to uh, get back in the swing of things. Last few months, I've been having a a few conversations with some uh, individuals, and now I'm able to finally get those into podcast form. So this first podcast we have here was actually an interview I recorded back in June with Brian Powers. And if you remember his name, he is the gentleman that recreated Cleveland's historic League Park. He's an architect and was able to use original blueprints and a computer system to, or a software system, I clearly I know what I'm talking about, to recreate what Leak Park actually looked like for a, a bulk of its history. So when I had the first interview with him in the first podcast, he was still in the process of creating Leak Park. But uh, since I think it was March, he finished. And in June, we sat down and recorded another interview. So I am trying to, uh, you know, ascertain what he learned from his project and it was a uh, a fascinating interview and when we were talking i let off with kind of a overarching big question of our loaded question of you know what were your biggest takeaways were there things that you you know learned that you didn't think you'd learn or things that you never could figure out because the blueprints only tell you so much and uh, this was brian's response well, I'll take uh, the first part of the question is really what what have I learned? Uh, I think it's been what since October since we chatted last, and obviously, I finished the project uh, right around March, uh, early April, and uh, that whole journey was actually uh, quite rewarding. Uh, I think if there's any one thing I've learned, uh, was how important it is uh, the ballpark was, and how much of an anchor it was to the Huff neighborhood uh, there in Cleveland. I think uh, as I 
got into more of the details since the last time we talked, one thing I really started to channel my focus in was uh, the neighborhood around League Park as well. I, I started to develop the site a little bit, expand uh, from the bounds around the ballpark. And uh, from that point, I was able to kind of see on a decade by decade uh timeline the impacts uh, that league park had on the community you know you, you you look at maps you look at plans from when it was uh say remodeled say 1910 uh you look at you look at these uh street maps from 1920 30 40 up until uh, the indians left uh how transformational uh that neighborhood was uh i think it really peaked out and you know the, the height you know when the, the, the trolley car served it Trolley cars served it, and how much uh, integrated it was with the community. I mean, within a one or two block area of the ballpark, I mean, you had residentials, you had school, recreation, all these amenities for the community, and the ballpark was the, the central anchor of that. And uh, I think if there's any one thing I, I kind of, I would say went off on a tangent on, but I looked at it as a sort of a new challenge was start to understand the community more. I think uh, it was a little bit different than uh, the Comiskey Park project uh, where, you know, you weren't quite in the downtown area, but you know, this really had a, a profound impact on it. And, you know, anytime you know, I found that, you know, through the projects I've worked on or any research project for that matter, it's, it's really easy to kind of go down a rabbit hole, but sometimes uh, that's, the beauty of it, you know, it's the element of discovery, what you find along the way that uh, not only educates you maybe on this ballpark or this historical aspect, but the people around it and the neighborhood around it. And League Park was certainly uh, pretty amazing in that regard. And Brian happened to be in town during the Power of Sports Summit that was held at the, the ballpark. And I was curious to know if he was able to actually get out to League Park. Um, you know, you probably stare at it for long enough on the computer. You want to go see what's left of the real thing. And fortunately, he was able to get out to League Park. Yes, I did. Uh, I had a chance to visit uh, League Park when I was in town for the uh Power of Sports Summit during the NFL Draft Week. Uh, I did manage to, uh, to carve some time out to visit uh, 66 in Lexington, visited the museum, uh, strolled around the park a little bit. Uh, actually, uh, I think of all sense of ir ir irony, you know, I, I was there on uh, right at the same time uh, they dedicated the, the inaugural pitch uh, when the park was dedicated. Yeah, you know, I think it was at that same day, same hour. I took a picture of it. Uh, I posted it. You know, it was like a hundred and was it a hundred and ten years? A uh, hundred. I take it back from, from the park when the park was dedicated back in the late eighteen nineties uh, to the day. Uh, I was there right at that same moment, so I kind of had the whole place to myself. It was kind of awesome, but I, I felt like there was a certain presence there. And uh, you know, when I had a chance to, to visit, uh, it was it was great to, to really see that and uh, to kind of go back and uh, reflect on it, you know, some of the details and some of the, you know, once you complete the project and kind of, kind of see it again in person, you know, there's certain elements that reveal themselves to you. And uh, I was able to absorb myself and some of those details uh, and kind of compare it uh, to what my final product was. And as Brian mentioned before, 
during his construction or reconstruction of Leak Park, one of the things he began to notice more and more was the kind of cityscape around the actual ballpark and how um, they kind of complemented each other. So when he had a chance to actually go see Leak Park again, I was curious if he was able to kind of walk around the outside and see what it looked like now. And, you know, it's drastically different than how it looked when that last game was played in the 40s. If you look over in the right field, there's no, you know, Andrews moving company building or there was a school again behind the fence. And just the housing stock has uh, has changed a lot. And I think there's probably only a handful of houses that are original to when League Park was there and those the four uh, corner sort of uh, perimeter. So uh, that was my next question for him. Yeah, I, actually, I did. I, I thought that was one of the more rewarding experiences of, of my visits. Uh, I walked around the entire uh, block area, well, which encompassed League Park. I went about maybe one or two blocks, you know, beyond that, and uh, there were a few homes that uh, I, I could probably date that were still around back when League Park uh, was still uh, in existence. But granted, there there wasn't many. You know, as I alluded to, the neighborhood is. Uh, underwent you know such a transformation you know in the last 50 years you know it was uh it declined and now it's starting to come back you know there, there's a variety of uh different housing uh, that's going up and i think because uh people are starting to realize the legacy of lee park and um you know due to the commitment you know by the city of cleveland you know where they really put uh some time into it and uh, we're starting to see some of the the fruits of the labor of the community and the neighborhood start to come back you know it's not an overnight process but uh yeah even though there's a lot of empty lots and uh there's quite a variety of different scenarios if you would uh, i was real encouraged to see that there are signs of development coming back and uh, I, I think it can only get better and i'm looking forward to it and when you create a large history project, whether it's recreating a ballpark or doing a large scale research project, there's always questions that just never get answered. And especially with something like League Park, there's only so many photographs. I'm sure the blueprints only tell you so much that there's questions that you, again, just can't answer. And I wanted to pose that question to Brian and overall, it didn't seem like there was too much uh, left unsaid about the ballpark. And uh, again, this was his, his response. I think for the most part, I, I was able to cover most of what I set out to do, but inevitably there's always those few uh, little details. I, I think as you immerse yourself into the project, you only, you think, well, gosh, if I could just go back in time and look around that corner and see, see what was there, <laughs> how that worked out. Uh, that's always, you know, hindsight. But uh, there are a couple things as I, as I delved into the history of the park. Uh, the Indians really looked uh, quite seriously uh, to expand the ballpark, especially along the outfield. Uh, they wanted to add, uh, there was talks about adding an upper deck. Uh, Osborne Engineering uh, did a study of that. Uh, I really would like to see that. Uh, I think it's one series of documents I never really saw. I, I read about it here and there. There are a couple of newspaper articles, but uh, but you know the Indians uh, perched this uh, you know some property directly behind uh, the center field fence uh, with the intention of uh, expanding the park. You know this was uh, I think around the mid to late thirties, and uh, in that time, of course, Municipal Stadium uh, was on the drawing boards, and uh, you know, by that time, you know they're committed uh, to move down. Indians were committed uh, to move downtown. You know at that point in time too, like many uh, urban ballparks. Uh, 
know, the automobile really started to become quite prevalent and uh, it kind of phased out, you know, the, the trolley system, people started to move out of the neighborhoods, you know, things like that. But uh, going back to your original question, uh, I would say that's probably the biggest thing is really, uh, I really wanted to get a grasp on what the long-term or what could have been the long-term, you know, improvements uh, for League Park. Um, so that, that certainly was one of them, you know, and I, I think anytime you, you do a lot of research, you know, as you uh, get into some of these other details, you know, you always find conflicting information here and there. Um, one thing was always uh, what the official listed capacity was, you know, in some circles, uh, it was 21,414, uh, but you always ask yourself, okay, does that include standing room, bleachers? Uh, how do they count that? Was there something I overlooked? So you always digging in a little bit deeper. There's always something I, I, I think you could find. I, I think in a way, infinitely, you know, you can kind of go back and, uh, you know, look at all these things. And uh, of course, you know, there's other challenges too. Uh, I, I think one kind of pleasant challenge, I enjoyed it too, was uh, um, recreating all the period signage and graphics, you know, things like that, like the life buoys soap. And uh, trying to find the vintage ads, you know, that were uh, replicas of what was uh, built in the ballpark. Uh, a lot of times, you know, because of the proportionality uh, of the billboards, uh, clubs had to uh, design their own signage. And uh, a lot of what you saw out there was not what you typically find in the back of your game program or on the, in the newspapers, magazines, whatever. So you have to be very creative uh, as to how... Uh, you recreated those signs, you know, much like I did with my model. You know, the park was faced with the same, same issue. And we'll be back after a quick break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And we're back. Now, one of the fun things, I think, of speaking to someone that's an architect that can read blueprints, uh, you know, they're going to be able to figure out things that, you know, someone like me who's got a background in history and has enough time or hard enough time looking at IKEA directions, you know, they're able to see something that's there that I wouldn't see that can maybe help, you know, again, tell the story of, of League Park. So with the questions that went unanswered, I, I was very curious as to what questions or what interesting things did Brian figure out. Previous podcast, we had spoke about, you know, one of the bathrooms had a, a window you could still see the field and just one of those things that never would have been captured, you know, in photographs or in newspapers. And, uh, you know, Brian had some interesting uh, thoughts on that. Uh, I would say probably some of the more interesting things I found out, uh, League Park uh, was very well thought out, you know, in terms of uh, spectator flow, uh, seat structure and usage. Uh, if you had a, a, a type of ticket, uh, whether it was a section or a different color or whatever, you had a very definitive path, you know, into the stadium and uh, a very clear direction as to where you were seating. 
know, most ballparks, you kind of walk in, it's very open. You can kind of, kind of uh, meander around, but uh, come to find out uh, what I found, thought was fascinating. League Park was very uh, kind of like a, a herding cattle, you know, in a way you, you come in uh, through the ticket office, you know, with your ball with your, your ticket, whether it's in the box seats or the pavilions, you make your way through a series of uh, fences and gates, you know, to your seats, uh, even the upper bo- upper deck boxes they had up there. They even had their own special cross aisles and stairs you know, as you get up there. So it was very methodical in terms of uh, how they corralled the people. The same thing when they uh, exited the ballpark. And I come to find out, you know, through my interpretation of uh, the blueprints, uh, some of the drawings I had were a little bit different than maybe what was uh, on file, uh, you know, with the city or what I've seen on uh, like auction blocks, you know, things like that. Uh, I found a, a, a comment from uh, the city of Cleveland when they reviewed it back in 1909 for permit approval. They felt it didn't have enough exits. So uh, they, they asked the Indians or Osborne to uh, add another exit in the wall. Uh, in fact, it's that very small arch exit that still exists today. You know, if you go along uh, 66, you know, with the, with the existing wall, that small archway was added well after a fact. It didn't, didn't appear, it didn't originally appear in all the drawings. So there's other little quirks like that, I think, that reveal themselves, you know, as I kind of guide into um, to things further. And then all, a lot of other details, you know, like uh, the passive air system, you know, that cooled the fans off, you know, with the uh, with the shutters and the louvers and uh, the ability to use uh, natural light uh, to illuminate the concourse. You know, as people walked around the ballpark, I thought it was very fascinating. One of the things that I often wonder is, you know, how League Park could have adapted to still be in use today. Obviously, there are examples with Wrigley and Fenway, uh, but the cards, you know, just didn't play out for League Park and you know, the club moved to Municipal Stadium. But I wanted to ask Brian, too, was it the fact that it was such a, a neighborhood ballpark that with the advent of uh, more car ownership, you know, there was nowhere to park, A, eh? um, so how would you accommodate large crowds trying to get to the ballpark with no parking and, uh, you know, cars everywhere? And again, Brian had this response. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, so much uh, uh, League Park was such a classic example of a neighborhood ballpark, and uh, it was very dependent on uh, the public transportation system and uh, you know the trolley system that, that served it. I, I think once people got more dependent on the automobile, it really started to... Uh, impact uh, the way people attended games you know people wanted convenience and uh it, it changed the way people lived uh, really you know moved people out to the suburbs uh automobiles became more affordable uh people started to move away from the city core and i think in some respects that was kind of the beginning of the end uh not not the end but uh beginning of the initial decline of the huff neighborhood and then then you started to see the transformation in the you know, the, the makeup of the neighborhood, uh, people that were coming in, you know, you had uh, the riots and everything uh, back in the, the mid 20th century, 60s, I think it was. And uh, things uh, were, were pretty, pretty tense there for a while. And, uh, you know, and I, I think a lot of people just uh, look for ways uh, to get rid of or just to get away from that. But uh, I, I think to address the, the, the question is, yeah, I, I think a lot of urban ballparks and the ones that are that survive to this day, you look at Wrigley and you look at Fenway Park, uh, they have a very, uh, very strong uh, 
public transportation system, and uh, they've been able to adapt well. You know, even coexisting, you know, with the, the automobile to a certain degree. You know, you got certain mixed uses that use the neighborhood. Like I said at the at the early part of. Uh, talk here uh league park uh had residential they had stores uh they had uh, uh factories uh schools all within a two block area of the ballpark and uh that really sustained the community and uh park league park was just uh, one of those things in it and i think if league park were around in that same site in the 20th century hosting major league baseball yeah it would have to be somewhat similar like maybe what you'd see in wrigleyville you know in chicago and uh Certainly could have, you know, everything's hindsight, but, you know, it would have made it for a very vibrant neighborhood. You know, some things would have gone one way or the other. I mentioned it in the first podcast with Brian that League Park wasn't his first foray into uh, creating or recreating ballparks. He actually did Chicago's Comiskey Park. So I wanted to know, now that he was done with both of them, if he was able to find similarities or a lot of differences between the two ballparks. Yeah, there were some similarities. Uh, one thing I, I thought was fascinating, I was able to uh, overlay cross-sections of League Park over Comiskey Park. And uh, you know, when you look at a stadium in section, that really tells the story right there. And uh, I thought what was fascinating uh, about League Park was, in my opinion, it has one of the more – had one of the most intimate upper decks, you know, in baseball. I mean, uh, the upper deck was literally right above the lower deck, and uh, you were within, uh, you know, 65 feet uh, of, of the field at any given point, you know, in the you know, from that area, you know, looking down onto the field. Um, so I, I think when you look at it in section, uh, you saw how intimate League Park was, how close to the action you were. Uh, Comiskey was, was somewhat similar to that. Uh, the difference between Comiskey and League Park, uh, most of the seats in Comiskey Park uh, were uh, concentrated on the lower deck and, and uh, the pavilions. And uh, as a result of that, your, your lower bowl was much deeper. And if you're sitting towards uh, the back of the slower bowl, you're a lot farther away from the action. So uh, Lee Park uh, being confined, you know, to the to that neighborhood block, uh, the seats went right up against the street. You know, if you look at it in section, you know, the top row of the lower deck as well as the upper deck is almost right up against the you know, property line uh, of the uh, uh, of the city block. So that really uh, kind of dictated uh, how the ge- geometry in the ballpark was laid out, and uh, because of that intimacy, you know, League Park uh, was a wonderful place uh, to watch a game. Uh, you know, there's always debate uh, in terms of uh, you know how, how columns you know might infringe you know on your sight lines, uh, but sometimes you know there might be a small sacrifice, you know, uh, you know to be able to get get a lot more people close to the action. So you're always trying to find where that sweet spot was. And Comiskey and League Park approached those things somewhat differently, but uh, the result was the same. I, I I concur that both those places were great places to watch baseball. Getting into more of the minute details, when you think of these older ballparks, you often think of obstructed views with beams and pillars being in the way. So I was curious as to how much that was an issue with League Park. There were, yeah, it was it was probably comparable to a lot of ballparks. Uh, I think League Park, since the lower deck was quite small, uh, you didn't have quite as many rows uh, behind the columns uh, like you do, like maybe you did at Comiskey Park. So as a result of that, uh, a good portion or a good percentage of the seats uh, in League Park had unobstructed views to the field. 
and we'll be back after another quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And we're back. Now that Brian is done with the project, I was curious, what was the end goal? Where does this live? And, and what do you hope to get out of it? Actually, uh, I've excuse me. I formed a uh, we formed a partnership with the Baseball Heritage Museum uh, right there in Cleveland. Uh, we're working to uh, make the League Park project a permanent display uh, at the museum. So, uh, yeah, the wheels are in motion uh, to get a lot of uh, to get what I've done this last year uh, display so the public can see it. Uh, I always have it available on my website uh, to visit www.bandboxballparks.com, but. Uh, uh, we're looking for new new and innovative ways uh, to engage uh, the people in the community uh, as to what was there before. Uh, the museum is a, is a wonderful place to, to get a feel for what's left of the park. But uh, one thing I found out in my visit to Cleveland is uh, both residents and even visitors uh, didn't realize uh, you know, the park existed there uh, like it did. You know, we're talking, you know, 70 years since it was uh knocked down uh not many people with the exception maybe of a few pictures really understood uh what you know what uh what the structure was like when it's there so this partnership with the museum uh it'll be a permanent display and uh, i'm exploring uh mechanisms through augmented and virtual reality to uh able to increase the interactivity you know with my exhibit so hopefully you know it'd be nice to maybe hold up a tablet walk around the site and see the ballpark uh, right in front of you and now that league park is done if you follow brian at his uh twitter handle at sports bandbox you'll know that he is uh well getting closer to being done with the reds old field crosley field so that was his or is his next project and i was getting kind of curious why he was staying in ohio and and looking at that ballpark well uh yep staying in state uh but going to the national league this time <laughs> uh yeah i'll be working on uh crosley field in uh, cincinnati ohio it was uh home of the reds uh from uh, you know, 1912 through 1970. Of course, they played baseball on that very same site, you know, many years before. But being the oldest uh, baseball franchise in baseball, there's certainly a lot of uh, history and legacy uh, that, that, that can be shared. I've always thought, I've always had another fascination for Crosley. Uh, you know, there's a lot of little quirks on it, you know, that weren't as prevalent maybe in other ballparks. Most people think of the, you know, he had the, the rising outfield terraces, uh, which were quite unique, uh, but it's also built as part of that, you know, within that same building boom, you know, that Comiskey Park, League Park, uh, Fenway Park was uh, uh, opened uh, that same year, Wrigley a couple years later. So uh, it would really be neat to, uh, you know, as this develops, you know, really, really start to uh, uh, compare uh, all these ballparks together and uh, just really see what it's like uh, to, to, to experience it. Uh, but, but yeah, League Park, or I'm sorry, uh, Crosley Field, I, I think in many respects, it's another classic urban ballpark. You know, if you see a lot of pictures before they put the interstate in there, it's a very high density neighborhood, you know, much like the Huff neighborhood was, you know, in Cleveland. 
So uh, I think given some of the uh, tangents I experienced, you know, looking into the neighborhoods uh, of League Park, I'll be able to uh, draw upon that and kind of compare it, see how the ballpark physically impacted uh, the surrounding neighborhood, you know, there in Cincinnati. And not only was Brian switching from the American League to the National League, but he was also researching a uh, non-Osborne engineering ballpark as well. No, actually, uh, Crossley Field was designed by a Cincinnati architect uh, named uh, uh, Harry Hank Jr. Uh, He actually designed part of uh, uh, Palace of the Fans, and uh, he had a strong relationship uh, with the Crosleys. Uh, so he was responsible for uh, the initial ballpark uh, when it was rebuilt in 1912 on various renovations you know, that happened throughout it. But, uh, yeah, I think Crosley was his only ballpark, but uh, he certainly put a lot of time and effort into it uh, over the years. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, it'll be interesting to kind of see how some of uh, his details differentiated themselves from uh, an Osborne Park, uh, which were the last two I've done. And me being the history archive, uh, you know, person that I am, I was really interested then because Brian said, you're not Osborne. It was just this other guy that his only ballpark he uh, helped create. Was it going to be difficult to reconstruct Crosley because, you know, Osborne's still in existence. They probably still have the blueprints, but this was a, a little bit different. Well, that was actually one of the reasons why I, I chose Crosley Field. Uh, as I was looking to, as I was investigating to determine what my next project will be, uh, you know, just out of a whim, I think it was uh, late January, early February, I, I sent a note to uh, Cincinnati Historical Museum uh, Library there, um, archives, you know, to see if they had anything uh, on Crosley Field and uh, Harry Hake. Uh, I did read that. Uh, they housed a lot of his archives, you know, that was uh, on file with his office as well as the city. So I, so I, I reached out and just see if they happened to have anything uh, on his ballpark. And uh, say about three or four weeks later, uh, they got back with me and said, yeah, they, they were able to, to dig in one of the vaults and they came across uh, the original documents for Crossley Field. So that was a game changer right there. I thought. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of my requirements. You know, if I have the proper documentation uh, to tell the story, uh, I'll definitely do it. So I was very fortunate. I spent about three days uh, in, in Cincinnati, you know, going over those documents. I even visited uh, the replica of Crosley uh, in Blue Ash, uh, just outside of town. It's actually a field in uh, uh replica of the original scoreboard. So what I try to do is just immerse myself into the neighborhood and just uh, the people around it to get the feel for the people and the ballpark. I wanted to leave it open a little bit to Brian if he he had any final thoughts on League Park. And uh, again, here's what he said. That's uh, pretty much the good gist of it. Uh, Like like yourself, I could really... uh, go into and talk about the details uh, of the park, uh, just a lot of unique uh, features. But uh, I, I tried to capture everything I did uh, through my Twitter account and kind of archived it as well as uh, created interactive exhibits on my website. So if you were to visit my website, uh, yes, uh, you, could, you could you could tour to the, both the clubhouses, home and visitors. You know, I, I have uh, different videos. You, know, you can walk around the concourses, fly around the park, uh, walk through the, the ticket office, up the ramp, find your seat, 
So I, I, hopefully I was able to capture the spirit of the park and open the doors, open the doors to Indians fans, see what it was like to uh, see a game there back in the day. And as Brian and I continued to talk after I thought we were done with the, the interview, he offered this really interesting and neat story, I think, in terms of creating the park and some of the smaller details that, uh, you know, he had to figure out. Uh, a good example, I, I, I think, is, you know, uh, working with my followers. Uh, I had an example where uh, we had uh, kind of some unsolved mysteries, you know, in the park. You're asking me a little bit earlier about some of the challenges uh, of the left field bleachers. I had some signage uh, at the very top of it uh, that ran across the top and uh, very few clear photos existed what that actually said. And uh, I was able to decipher various sources. You know, the first part of it is actually come to find out a public service announcement. Uh, it actually said, uh, Cleveland values your life, protect it, drive carefully, walk sensibly. You know, it was classic uh, public service announcement. I, I thought it said, uh, instead of walk sensibly, it said, I thought it said, uh, like, uh, wear seat belts, you know, the blurred photographs. And then uh, through the help of no, num- numerous followers, we were able to piece together what it actually said. One gentleman you know, found a photo inside old municipal stadium that had that same public service announcement. So I was able to solve the mystery, correct my model and uh, get it accurate. So that's what makes it fun. <laughs> And that concludes our episode of Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast. Thanks for checking this out. Also, thank you to uh, Brian Powers for uh, chatting with me again about his League Park project. If you are interested, the Baseball Heritage Museum at League Park does have the uh, complete project uh, up and available to fans coming through the ball or through the museum. You can check it out while you're at League Park. So again, I think that's a really neat way to see what the ballpark looked like and then be able to go out the doors and kind of walk around and uh, have your bearings set. But again, thank you for joining us and uh, looking forward to doing more of these. You've been listening to Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast with Guardians team historian Jeremy Fedor.